arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. You're listening to Wishing and Wanting, sung by Arthur Fields, one of the top songwriters and singers from the early 20th century. As a teenager, I rummaged through old 78 recordings in an old house in the woods, including many by Arthur Fields. I had no idea who Arthur Fields was. I inserted the 78s in Sunni's cabin. With the arrival of Sunni's husband, Tug, the scene for Alan and Sunni's family problems soon escalates. We were also introduced to Sunni's Island, the one that Alan remembered that one summer in Barkley, Idaho. But remember, Alan cannot find a job and owes Roscoe and his people an extraordinary amount of money, which, when due, is expected to be paid. Here is episode three of Downsize by Robert P. Fitton. Downsized by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 10. Hershey promised two more prospective clients would take a look at the store. The first woman, a local lady who used to own a toy store on Main Street, did not make a ready offer. She always liked the store and, like most people in town, was friends with Aunt Amanda. If people would buy toys from the local merchants like they used to instead of that big toy mart past Cornerville... Hershey erupted from behind one of the support posts, and he moved out with both arms and mouth moving at the same rapid clip. Mrs. Ellis, Mrs. Ellis, a little advertising in the Gazette, perhaps a radio ad at a Carnival station. Hershey, there has to be a reason to get them up here. Oh, price, price, price! Alan rolled his eyes at Mrs. Hennessy and then whispered in her ear, Takes more than price to win a steady customer. Sometimes I wish Hershey would put a lid on it. What was that, Mrs. Hennessy? asked Hershey from up front near the window. She said, you've lit the fire, now let Mrs. Ellis decide. Oh, okay, thank you, Alan. Come on, let me help you back to your car, Mrs. Ellis, said Alan. Hershey planted his feet with folded arms and clenched his teeth. Alan, now go get yourself a Coke or something, Hershey. Relax, I'll be right back. He brought Mrs. Ellis across the front porch and back to her old red sedan. I remember shopping in your store when I was here that summer. Yes, you wanted baseballs and magic kits. Yeah, I thought I was quite the magician. Till I tried to pull Kenny's brother Tom's rabbit from a hat and it took off down Main Street. I don't recall that incident. Just as well, Mrs. Ellis. 
You call her as she are, feel free to call me at Nora Pillsbury's if you have to. And don't feel pressured into anything. Sometime, Hershey should just padlock his... You have a nice day now, Mrs. Ellis, and I'll talk to you later. She started the huge machine and Alan shut the door. The ripe gas mixture mixed with the humid October air as she backed around the lot and headed to the highway over the tracks. Hershey smoked a cigarette on the porch. Hey, that's bad for your health, Hershey. Alan, what are you trying to do to me? He followed Alan back inside the store. Mrs. Hennessy winked at a grinning Alan, with Hershey still in pursuit. Just leave the real estate to real estate people. You're being too nice to these people. The way I look at it, Hershey, is either it works for them or it doesn't. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a friend to call in Los Angeles. Alan started for the back room as Hershey continued. Then why don't you just take a lunch break when Dave comes in? This is a perfect place for his liquor store. Yeah, until the first train comes by and knocks the bottles off the shelf. Alan heard no reply and headed straight for Aunt Amanda's desk. He picked up the phone. He spent the next 15 minutes charging his calls verbally since he was speaking into a rotary phone and finally tracked down Brian during lunchtime at Salinger's Bar. Brian's voice reflected the wild atmosphere inside the establishment. Alan easily pictured the patrons packed against the bar and booths for lunch. Well, if this isn't the lost soul checking in from parts unknown. Good morning, Bry. A.B., I won't even ask where you are, but Melinda is frantic. Oh, why is that? She's been in Texas and wondering where you are and why you haven't called her new voicemail I gave you. Well, she wasn't too worried when she left Palm Springs, was she? Panic move when you took the gas pipe. Oh, aptly put. Listen, I need you to do me a favor. I need all my mail forwarded to Nick Conti. If you could... Alan, I don't even know where you are. I've had a few people asking me about you. First, I should be able to tell them where you are and how you are going to pay them. I left some money aside. Yeah, but Alan, you need to get back to work. It's not that simple. These things take time. <laughs> Roscoe doesn't care about time. They'll track you down, Alan. I'm not going to have them coming after me. I guess that's what friends are for. Never mind. Maybe I can do it from here. Goodbye, Brian. Brian had already hung up. Alan stared out the dirty window toward the train tracks and rubbed his eyes. He needed to phone blitz every company regardless of salary and start working again and he was going to have to listen to Nick's advice about selling off his assets. Without money coming in, things would eventually close around him. When Alan heard the railroad crossing signals at the highway, he set down the phone. He was getting nowhere calling companies, and Hershey was nervous about him hanging around when the new client arrived. He cupped his hand as he ran toward the clock. Mrs. Hennessy, if uh, SUNY... I'll tell her you stepped out to watch the train, and I'll be at the ball field. Thanks. Alan rushed out the back bay door and leaped off the dock into the yard. He could hear the locomotive rumbling as it neared the lumberyard and railroad station across the highway. Quickly, he jogged around front. The mammoth orange and black diesel had just crossed the highway, and cars were backed up behind the crossing gates. The ground under him shook. The whistle blew at the crossing, and the mighty train, as tall as trees, cut a swath through the quiet, humid air. The engineer flipped his cap. Alan waved, as did some of the passengers heading north. A couple of kids gave him the peace sign. 
Behind the rear railing, a man read a magazine as the last car shot by. The train shrunk into the hills. The bells grew silent at the highway. The gates went up and traffic resumed. The empty, decrepit station was a constant reminder that Barclay didn't warrant a stop. He thought back as he walked to the dirt road, how the abandoned station across the street once teemed with people. Without the plant, the town was ruined. Who would want to invest up here now? Through the clump of trees up the road, a group of kids played ball as a horn sounded. Soon he drove her chrome-plated blue pickup down the dirt road. A dust cloud followed the truck as she waved out the driver's side window. She pulled up to the porch, cut the engine, and opened the door. I saw you watching the train. I was at the crossing. Hershey stuck his head out the window. Hey, Sooney. Any luck there, Hirsch? Go on a nice long walk together. Talk about old times before Dave gets here. Oh, you playing real estate salesman again, Mr. Sackett? She asked, looking up. I just think people should decide in their own good time. Sometimes you need to speed up the process, said Hershey, pretending to shove the porch air. You want to see the old swimming hole or the baseball game? Alan looked across the highway and studied the old red tiles atop the station. Actually, Sooney, I'd like to walk down by the old station. Sounds good to me. She turned back to Hershey, now smoking a cigarette. He's out here, Hirsch. Alan liked the feel of his sneakers against the stone and the sand, and alternated glances between Sooney and the station. In her baggy green shorts and faded top, she stood about even with his shoulders about the same proportion to his height as when they were ten years old. You know, I was doing a lot of thinking when I was out here this morning. I thought I saw smoke rising out of that head of yours. What were you thinking about, Alan? Oh, the station and the store. He stepped over the steel rails where the tracks dissected the dirt road. At the highway, he gently glided her across, but quickly removed his hand. They crossed the tracks, cutting across the asphalt. See, the station and the store are more related than you think. If the owner of that store could get the train to stop at Barclay, they might have a shot at doing some business. Well, that's true, but why would you want to stop at Barclay? The store, it's as plain as the nose on my face. It is? She walked along the sand-crushed stone road to the station and pondered his remark. He looked in her eyes as she nodded. I could swear you know what I'm talking about, Sooney. No one else would be on the same wavelength. So you're saying if the so-called owner of the store advertised and stocked the store properly, it might draw in people on the train. And by car. Alan attempted to pull a piece of weathered plywood off the station window. Under the archway between the two sections, remnants of campfires inside the structure reminded him of a war zone. The wonderful ornate oak moldings were spray-painted and chipped away. He caught her figure, backlit against the sunlight, and her bright eyes brought him back to a time that was far away. Although he had never thought much about her during the years since he left Barclay, an odd nurturing feeling, like the unusual warming breezes rolling into town over the western mountains, now filled his heart. I don't think you want to sell that store, Alan Sackett. He furrowed his brow and wanted to move closer, but he remained near the archway. Maybe not, but I have to sell it. She had the same longing look in her eyes. Well, some things are better left unsaid. I'm only up here until I do sell it. She wandered slowly from the archway where the benches used to grace the beautiful varnished moldings, and she had the widest smile on her face. 
Her moist eyes seemed to pierce his thoughts. If you could, in theory, mind you, do something with that store, Mr. Sackett, what would you do? Alan produced a quick smile. <laughs> what would I do? Yeah, because Alan Sackett, as the years went by up here and that store fell into decline, I thought about the same thing. I dreamed about what I might do to save it or resurrect it. That store means more than just a building. Last night, after Tug went up to bed, you talked about all the work your aunt and uncle put into that store. Not only that, it represented a simpler time when things made sense, when people made sense, when everything was right with the world. They embraced in unison and kept their arms locked as if they had both lost something special that could only be recaptured within each other's touch. Alan took her hand and led her through the arch and pointed across the highway to the faded red building beyond the tracks. I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd go into that back room and I'd pull everything outside into the back lot. I'd separate the paint from the brushes, the boards from the nails, and I'd take every piece of that stock I could use to fix the store up. Those buckets with red paint dripped all over the label. Yeah, that's it. Dip in the brush and cover that faded mess and have those deep red clapboards just the way we remember it. And I'd spend money on the sign, get it gold and black, give it that rustic look. Exactly, said Suni, as if she had thought about the scenario long ago. And inside, I'd clear the place out. You would? Sure, with those extra boards, put in a new floor on the mezzanine and coat it too. Rewire the place, upgrade the phone system and put in a modern office upstairs, away from the customers. They'd get used to that old crank phone and pay for it, of course, in the lobby. And would add a tad of stained glass. She smiled. For that quaint feeling you get when you walk inside, past the player piano and the music box. Yeah, and sell CDs of both. I'd have a wide range of music always playing from a floor model radio in the mezzanine where the kids and adults would be able to crank up the old phonograph and listen to 78s. You know, when I was 13, I was alone on the island in the old cabin. I spent an afternoon just playing those old records. Tears welled in her eyes. All that stuff from World War I in the 20s, that was the last time I listened to it. You could sell that stuff in the store. I would, and I'd add on out back, an area just for antiques with a 60% markup or more, depending on what the market might bear. Soon he sat on the exposed cinder block wall. I baked things, had the place smelling of potpourri and fresh cookies from the oven, candy and an assortment of coffees. Alan placed his sneaker on the wall and balanced his arms on his prop knee. He looked into the puffy clouds as he spoke. The imports would be stuffed along with furniture on the mezzanine. Rows of imported crafts and goods bought for nothing. I know where to buy. And the people getting off the train in the station SUNY would flock over. Their wallets open and their credit cards swiping into the card machines. The dollars lined all the way up to Kenny Baines's office downtown. And how, Mr. Sackett, do we get them here? Fix up the station? Nope, that will come. The ads will bring them in. Full spread glossies and a website. We'll lure them in. I'm sure you'd be involved in some small way also, Sunny. Alan closed his mouth, wet his lips a few times, and did not say anything more. She looked through the archway toward the lumber yard. He continued to stare at the clouds and realized he was only dreaming. Roscoe and his creditors would be demanding payment. They had to sell the store.
Downsized by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 11. With the cooler weather, dressed in a blue jogging suit, Alan developed a quicker pace during his runs through the undulating hills, sometimes over dirt surfaces and fields. Even his lung capacity had increased and his mileage extended, yet he was still bothered by burgeoning problems. He rehashed with every step toward the store his phone conversations from around the country. A month ago, when Archer fired him from Lambert's, he believed a few phone calls would garner him a new position and restore his monthly income. To bolster his resources, he had dealt with Roscoe. Now Nick Conti had already paid the first installment of that loan to Roscoe. Only the payment was not made with fresh income, but with money from the loan itself. Down the slope, the blue lake flickered through the huge fir trees. His resume lay in personal filing cabinets and computers around the country, but his present predicament bore no relationship to the needs of the major companies. Graybar was unsure what they really wanted, and none of the other companies had an imperative mandate for a new position. Nick, now receiving his mail, charged him steep fees for handling the slow-moving lawsuit and the management of his personal finances. All of his personal items had been moved out of the Nuevo to a storage area. The car and boat loans were both paid from Roscoe's dwindling funds, and a chunk of money remained in the bank account, but Alan had no means to pay the loan back. Awake at night at Nora Pillsbury's rooming house, Alan sat in the porch swing of the cooler air and peered across until dawn on the moonlit town and the silver mountains. Each time he vowed to instruct Nick to sell off his assets, one of the prospect companies would hint about a job offer. He slowed as he reached the long stretch of dirt road near the store and the highway. The baseball field beyond the trees was quiet with the kids back in school. He stopped his watch timer, breathing rapidly as he walked the hundred yards to the store and stepped under the trees near the loading docks. Hershey had brought dozens of people through the store, including Mr. Tweeter, but only came up with two potential buyers. The offers to purchase his aunt's store were laughable. Alan was aware of his sentimental feelings about the store, intensified by his daily sojourns to the building, but was more concerned that the store would remain unsold. He had cleaned up the second floor and categorized every item into long, neat rows. The paint cans and brushes were lined up near the top of the stairs. An occasional cool gust would whisk some fall leaves from the yellowing trees to the real lot as he headed to the loading dock. He climbed to the side door and into the stockroom. I'm back, Mrs. Hennessy. He was paying her salary, too. I don't know why people run like animals, she called from the front. I'm fine. How are you? He stepped onto the wooden staircase and climbed to the second floor. I get faster and faster, but I'm going nowhere. Oh, aren't we the philosopher today? She asked as she entered the stockroom and looked up the stairs. Alan picked up three paint cans by the wire handles. Oh, I knew this day would come. Those cans keep getting closer and closer to the stairs. And now down they come, said Alan, grinning as he cruised down the stairs. I'm tired of sitting around, Mrs. Hennessy. I'm going to get that ladder and transform this place if I have to coat those clapboards ten times. Ah, man with a mission. Alan stepped onto the loading dock and set the cans on the cement. Then he hoisted the chain and moved the galvanized bay door up. The cool air rushed inside. Oh, by the way, soon he called. Alan raised his brows as he backed up the stairs. And? 
She said to tell you the kids were looking forward to taking that boat ride over to the island this weekend. And Kenny and his family are able to go, too. Saturday looks good weather-wise, not too cold. Did she say that? He asked, gripping the other handles and the two brushes. No, I said that. Weather was just on the radio. I keep looking out at that island and wondering what's out there. Alan passed her and brought the cans to the dock. What about Tug? Yeah, what about him? He's welcome to come along. I know Kenny was going to call the shop. As a matter of fact, Sunny's mother is coming. You're welcome too, Mrs. Hennessy. This isn't some private tryst with Sunny. He saw her wide-eyed smile. I didn't say it was. She started back to the front room and he followed her from the dock. Now look, Mrs. Hennessy, I know you want to play matchmaker. I'm not chasing after another man's wife. Those kids have a father and I'm here for the short run. You're not going anywhere, she said, taking the position next to the counter. You don't understand. I have commitments. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Sure, you probably heard some of my phone conversations from the back room. I'm not an eavesdropper. Well, I can't stay here and I'm not a homewrecker. I'm not that kind of guy. Mrs. Hennessy sat on the stool next to the phone. The only homewrecker works in the auto body. No comment. I'm going upstairs and change my clothes, Mrs. Hennessy, and then I'm going to slap paint on this place and bring it back to life. Alan opened the side door, pulled the light string, and took one step toward the stairs. Mrs. Hennessy said nothing, but he knew what she was thinking. If he's not leaving town, then why is he slowly bringing things from his suitcase upstairs to the apartment of the mezzanine? A couple of nights he had even slept above the store. He hurried up the stairs, thinking about Sunny. He had seen her every day since he came back. Not only did they meet at the store when she came in to check on Mrs. Hennessy, but he had become increasingly involved with her family. He had attended Ben's soccer games at the elementary school, and one afternoon, as he sat on Nora Pillsbury's porch talking to Jacob, Amanda walked down the sidewalk from town. When Alan introduced her to Jacob, her interest in history was immediately apparent. Although she remained immersed in her teenage world, she frequently joined them in discussions about Barclay's past. His friendship with Sunni deepened, and he had taken several long walks with her around town. But other than giving her a hug, he had never kissed her, nor had he taken it further. Now, as he looked around the upstairs apartment and stared out the kitchen window toward the highway, he wondered if he had been denying deeper feelings. He shook his head and grabbed his old jeans off the center sofa. Too many things were on his mind. All he cared about in the world now was sloshing the paint on the clapboards and revitalizing his aunt and uncle's store. Soon he drove into the parking lot around noon. Alan remained on the ladder, lapping his wide bristle brush into the deep-hued red paint and transferred the thick liquid onto the clapboards above the porch. Soon he talked to him from the ground, but Alan's solid facade only lasted a few minutes. She had that effect on him, getting him to clown around and then they'd both laugh. He threatened to paint her beige two-piece dress, descended the ladder and pretended to chase her around the parking lot. They both stood on the they both stood back and studied the wet clapboards above the sign. You've taken on a big job, Alan, old buddy. Think I have the time? he asked, laughing. Well, I would say that I started thinking about that last week, Alan. Either you're using up your vacation time trying to sell this place or something else is afoot. Alan wanted to tell her, but feared he might lose credibility. Believe me, Sunni, I thought I'd sell this place in a week and I'd be gone. Maybe the paint will help. She nodded and he thought back she had figured out he was fired, but he wasn't sure. 
He also knew she was not the type of person who would badger him. He liked her good manners and her sense of humor. As they walked over to her truck, he joked about something they had done as kids. Memories of that summer and the friendly interaction remained alive and vivid. On the ladder near the corner of the building facing the docks, Alan turned westward as the last piercing sun ray shot through the tree branches and covered his handiwork. Out at the highway, Sunni's amber directional blinked. Ben hung out the side window, waving as Sunni beeped the horn. Amanda was wedged between both of them. The truck crossed the tracks and quickly pulled into the lot. Second coat? she yelled. Alan smiled and started down the ladder. His hands were caked with red paint and his shirt and jeans spotted with deep crimson blotches. Hey, Alan, the place looks great, shouted Ben as he ran toward the building. Alan's hands ached. He had continuously painted, interrupted once by a call placed to Brian at Lambert's. His friend was busy and Alan was scheduled to call the office in a few minutes. He walked along the building and gazed up at the rich clapboards, but his smile widened as he saw Sunni unloading several metal pots from the truck. Amanda carried the plates. You didn't know I was a caterer, did you? Something about her bringing the prepared supper touched him, as did her green eyes and curly blonde hair and the orange sunset glow. Sunni, you've got your own job. Here, let me help you with that. Are you kidding? You're a walking paint bucket, Alan. She looked up the storefront and Alan turned. He was surprised at the rich transformation. You're a magician. Does look pretty good, doesn't it? He opened the screen door and then the inner door. She passed by and headed directly for the counter as if she had already planned the event. Amanda washed down the counter and lined up the plates. Ben was brought into action to set up the stools along the counter. Alan, Jacob showed me a book from the library with all these old pictures about town, said Amanda. Oh yes, I've seen it. The Silver Strike established this town. Well, not really. The town was established in 1827. You see, fur traders used the area for trapping and local farms developed long before the strike. Oh, Amanda has become our resident historian, said Sunni. Resident Payne, said Ben. Now, now, Benji, said Alan. He flipped the light switch and the wall fixtures tapered bulbs he had repaired yesterday brightened the store. But he was still nervous about being alone with Sunni and her children without Tug. Well, you should have asked Tug to come over. Tug is working. She scooped the spaghetti from a wide aluminum pot. Although impressed with her ability to deflect things, she didn't want to speak about it, and Alan sensed something else was amiss in the marriage. Hey, this spaghetti looks great. She set the Parmesan cheese on the counter and pulled out a long loaf of Italian bread. Good, you must be hungry. I am. It's 6.30. He raised his index finger. I'm supposed to make a call back to Los Angeles. From her pensive look, he assumed she might be thinking he was calling a girlfriend, but being married, she was in no position to give an opinion. Alan quickly closed the stockroom door and walked through the sharp twilight. He dialed Brian's number directly. Brian Donnelly. Brian, it's Alan. A.B. Yeah. I'm glad you got me, A.B. Archer had me doing scheduling. Sounds like you're busy, said Alan, wondering if Brian was promoted. A.B. Roscoe is livid. I haven't talked to him, but the people who know him, my friends from down under, they think you've split town for good. Tell him Nick will keep paying the money. I will. They went through your place at the Nuevo before things were moved out. Alan looked across the road toward the high, thin clouds above the trees. 
He closed his eyes as he thought about his luxurious suite at the Nuevo. What did they do? They went through all your stuff. They're anxious about your whereabouts and the money. Well, the money's coming. Tell them to back off, Brian. And just tell me where you are. What's the big secret? Peace and serenity, that's the secret. Let me take care of business and then I'll be back. He picked away at the dried red paint along his fingernails. Just tell him that. What about employment? can't believe you haven't found anything yet. Believe it, I can't find anything. Oh, God. If they knew that, they'd be out looking for you right now, A.B. Let him look. I'll call you in a few days. I'll have money by then. Hopefully by next month I can deliver it in person. That'll keep Roscoe happy. So do I, Bri. He slowly set down the phone and thought about Roscoe, the all-night coffee shop. Dipping into the original loan would deplete it quickly and dig him in deeper. He opened the front door and soon he looked up from a full plate of spaghetti. Alan, I apologize. I've already had the kids say grace. We started. No, no problem. She dipped a large metal serving spoon into the mixture. You got double. You worked hard. Thanks tried to smile, but she seemed to sense something was wrong as she brought the plate to the counter. Well, I wish your Aunt Amanda were alive to see what you did today. She was a nice lady, said Amanda. She has my name. A weird name, and she looked at her mother. Your Uncle Ned was probably the last one to paint the store. Well, you got that right, said Alan. So, are we all prepared to go to the island on Saturday? Yeah, Kenny and Jill have the kids ready, said Suni. Do you know how to fish, Alan? asked Ben. My dad has all this equipment, but we never go. Benji, I don't know a bass from a striper, but I'm willing to give it a shot. I can still stick a worm on a hook. Oh, that's great. Can we fish from the boat, Mom? Sure. Maybe we'll even have supper before we come back. From the stool, Ben gave a high five to Alan. Alan gazed over at Suni and then back at Ben. Alan? Looks like you and I have a deal. Downsize by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 12. Alan stopped by McGowan's office on the way to Kenny Baines' house. McGowan wanted him to sign some of the paperwork relating to Aunt Amanda's estate. Alan listened to McGowan's wife, who sometimes acted as her husband's secretary, legal assistant, and chief coffee maker. She brought Alan a full coffee mug, and they chatted as they waited for McGowan. So you seem to be acclimating to Barclay once again, Mr. Sackett. I also hear talk you're not going to leave. Alan swallowed the strong, bitter coffee and squinted. Well, I haven't been able to sell my aunt's store. Looks real nice what you did with the paint. Well, thank you, Mrs. McGowan. Now, if we can just convince some prospective clients of that... He held the coffee mug, afraid she would give him more coffee. Done right, that store could be viable again. Well, that's all Suni's talking about down at Benson's, Alan. I have to tell you this. This is a small town, and I know you two were friends when you were kids, but you've been seeing a lot of each other. Folks are talking. Oh, yeah, and what are folks saying, Mrs. McGowan? Well, they, uh, you know... What, that I'm carrying on with her? Well, you can stop that rumor right in this office. I'm just afraid of Tug, what he might do. He can get violent when he's drunk. He asked Charlie to get him off a complaint in downtown Cornerville. She leaned forward and put her hand over her mouth like McGowan. 
He was with two women down at some dive. Got into a fight. Bad. Real bad. He hit some guy with a pipe. Charlie wouldn't defend him. Alan took another sip of coffee. A pipe? Seventeen stitches the man had on his face. Alan rubbed his chin and cheek. Oh, boy. All I'm saying, and I don't make it a point to meddle in somebody's business. No, 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 of course not. But I wouldn't run the risk. Thank you, I'll take the matter under consideration. Alan was at first fearful of Tug, but when he finally left McGowan's office and started down Main Street, he worried about Suni and the kids. She deserved more than some guy who cheated on her and hit people with a pipe. Nor was he going to allow Tug to impede any friendship with Suni. He moved down Main Street on his way to Kenny's house, perhaps the only contemporary structure in town, and hoped that Tug didn't show up for the island trip. Alan was elated when Suni told Kenny how Tug had to work all day. The wooden boat docked off the highway, accommodated Kenny's family, Melba, Suni, Ben, and Amanda. Alan volunteered as helmsman and held the green metal handle. Although he had taken boating lessons at Marina Del Rey and could successfully pilot a 35-foot cabin cruiser around harbors between buoys and boats, he left the dock abruptly. His course was erratic enough to get him laughing along with Suni and listen to some of the friendly ribbing from Kenny. Suni pulled her blue baseball cap up over her eyes and pretended not to look where he was taking the boat. The motor was loud all the way across the lake, and Ben specifically instructed him to bring the boat to the left of the island. Stay out, stay out, the rocks are along the edge of Wichita, called Suni, pointing to the big island. Alan was not sure whether Wichita was the real name or something they had made up, but he stayed to the left. Once they were halfway around the forested island, he saw the opening to a series of smaller channels and a wider lake beyond. Bits and pieces of long-ago trips across the lake now filtered into his head. He stared at Suni's curly hair flapping around the cap, and he wished she was not married to Tug. Once past the large island, they entered a winding channel a few hundred yards wide, cutting through the untouched hills between the lakes. Kenny told a story about a woman who once swam across the lake. In the cool, early, fresh fall air, a continuous smile remained parked on Alan's face. As his eyes swept across the land down to the sandy shore, he caught a glimpse of Suni in her oversized smoky sunglasses reflecting the sun's light into a polarized glare. An elongated brown line appeared on the blue lake. Ben detailed the directions to a small dock around the first cove. The brown-stained boards of an A-frame structure soon materialized, as if from another dimension, within the spruce and the yellow aspen. Alan was more confident with his boating skills as he reduced the throttle and circled toward the first cove. Ben's brow tightened. The dock was constructed into the slope and under several wafting yellow branches. Ben held the rope tightly, preparing to lasso the dock post as Alan cut the engine and they glided perfectly parallel to the wooden walkway. Ben hurled the rope high into the air, missing on the first attempt, and Kenny quickly fished it from the water, and on the second try, he secured the rope around the post. Not bad, not bad, said Kenny, trying to stand in the unstable boat. Well, I guess all those piloting lessons finally paid off. Yeah, well, does that mean we're going to be airborne on the way back? Asked Suni, taking off the sunglasses. Depends how fast I get this baby going, said Alan, pretending to rev the engine. Well, don't worry, if you crack it up, the island is one of the few places in the area that picks up the cell service. 
while I'm quite confident in my piloting abilities. Soon he covered her mouth and laughed as Alan grinned. Ben scampered onto the dock and Alan followed Kenny and his kids. He helped Melbar off the boat. Soon he was off next with Amanda and Alan looked toward the A-frame nestled between the trees up the path. How did you get an island? Melba raised her brows. It came down through my family. My great-uncle first had a shack out here, and somehow he claimed the land. Charlie McGowan checked the deed. It's all legal and everything. I used to come out here as a young girl. Just a shack then. You remember when we brought you kids out to that cabin? Tugging his buddies about the only good thing he's done. Built that A-frame five years ago. He used to come out here and trap game, but he never comes out here anymore. You two solving the world's problems? asked Suni as they stepped onto the trail. That's a nice house. Suni nodded and they followed the rocky, tree-covered path to the deck stairs about 50 feet ahead. She took a key from her jeans and placed it in the slider lock. Alan motioned Melba inside. He stepped onto the red, white, and brown braided rug. Sharper light filtered through the wood-framed glass at each end of the A-frame, and the skylights in the plank ceiling produced a softer gray hue on the wood walls. On the second floor, a carved wood rail bordered a walkway in rooms beyond. Below the overhang was a library on the right, and an adjoining den and a huge country kitchen facing the trees, the lake, and the hills. So, this is it? asked Kenny, trying to be funny. Home sweet home! replied Suni as Kenny's kids followed Ben across the deck outside the far sliders. We'll get the grill cooking later, and if you guys are lucky, we'll have fresh fish. Well, don't count your flounders before they're caught, he said. I think flounder is a saltwater fish, said Kenny. Of course it is, said Suni. We'll just let Alan stay in his fishing paradise. Well, I'll show you guys. I'll have a barrel full of fish before this day is out. Alan moved with Suni down the lake trail. Last week, and we could have been swimming. Well, maybe we can find a heated pool. Did you ever learn the backstroke? Yes, I learned the backstroke. He gazed across the water entrance between the lakes, and the stark isolation provided no evidence of the town or civilization beyond the hills. Alan smiled. He had sunk in the water every time he tried the backstroke when he was a boy. You were a good athlete, Suni. I don't know where we got the energy, Alan. She looked toward the kids down near the lake. When you're a kid, your body is charged. You're always moving, darting around. You can't contain yourself. You ever miss being a kid? She asked. Yeah. I guess the more extensive the pressure is as an adult, the more you want to go back to that simpler time when you didn't have to worry about anything, and the adults took care of you. They walked over the rocks diagonal to the beach. Suni, remember the Victroller in the old cabin? What happened to it? Her face became serious. Now it was thrown out, and the records too. I love to hear that scratching. You'd wind that thing up and then release the lever. He stood with her on the rocks. All those records, they were from World War I. I forget who sang it. It was like, over there, over there. Right, right, it was Arthur Fields. My grandmother loved him. You can even ask my mother. He was really big. He sang that song before Elvis, Are You Lonesome Tonight? That's right, she smiled. My favorite was Wishing and Waiting. Grandma had it on a blue label, sung by Arthur Fields, of course. Alan furrowed his brow and looked out over the lake. What are you thinking there, Alan Sackett? 
Alan took out his phone. I have an idea. Less than a minute later, he had located the upload online. Soon he raised her hands to her open mouth. I don't believe it. Says here it's a foxtrot. I don't know the foxtrot. Good, neither do I. He took her by the hand and they danced and giggled on the rocks as the song played in the cool mountain air. They moved across the flat surface and he lost himself in the moment. The song only lasted a few minutes and he hugged her when it was done. I feel as though we went back in time. Alan nodded and just kept smiling. He picked up his phone. You have a high-pressure job, don't you? Oh, I have pressure, Sunni. She leaned against the rocks. He knew the look as her eyes slowly captured some distant thought. You don't have a job. Alan tried not to smile. You've lost your calling. I want to close down Benson's and open Madame Suno's parlor of the paranormal. Fired? That's more complicated than that. She hoisted herself onto a jutting ledge. People aren't fired anymore. They usually have some politically correct way to say it. I was slid out because my company trimmed down after the stock market crash. Payrolls were high and they just added up the numbers and cleared everyone out who was making a significant chunk of change. Did you say or do something wrong? No, I did a super job for them. They had no complaints. The market crashed and they trimmed the budget. You'll have to excuse me, I just live in a small town, but when a man does a good job, he usually gets to be the boss. Well, the corporate world has its own rules. Look at IC. Yeah, we pulled our money, the IC fund. Ask Kenny. We got legal representation from Seattle, she said, shaking her head. It went nowhere. IC left Barkley. Sometimes things happen beyond our control, said Alan. Yep. But I knew you weren't on vacation. Alan moved on the rock and sat next to her. I've been emailing my resume all over the country, at least a hundred places. When I'm close to getting an interview, the company can't make up its mind and what they want. It's probably going to be a big recession, and I don't know whether somebody's blackballed me either. It's possible. They both looked past the kids and toured the connecting cove. As Alan debated whether to tell her the rest of the story, he felt her hand for a scant second. You'll find something, Alan. I know you will. Well, Sunni, here I am. Back here where things have no price tag. She slowly nodded with her blonde hair ablaze in the sunlight. No price tag. A simple life. Alan nodded, closing his eyes as he thought of Roscoe's loan and the possibility of Nick selling off his assets. His words came out as he opened his eyes. You see, Sunni, as an adult... I've made a mess of my personal life. Again, she said nothing, maybe trying to formulate the words. You have someone in your life, Alan? I guess I did. It seemed like I did, but I have my doubts now. When the pressure got to be too much, Melissa bolted. She shook her head and stared at the ground. Hey, Sunni, I don't want to lay all this on you. What else? When you're really making the big bucks, you start thinking in terms of outlays per month. All the car companies and credit card people, they want you to think this way. I was ahead cash-wise of what my payments were. Oh, so you owe a few bucks. Alan crossed his arms over his chest, and the queasiness in his stomach made him uncomfortable. He spoke slowly, using his hands. My lawyer has a lawsuit against the Lambert's contract, so I'm counting on that. Legal entanglements can go on for years. And I counted on getting another job right away, but that hasn't happened. 
I'm in the process of having my lawyer sell off my assets, but I can't find a job. Well, not due to lack of effort. She jumped down from the rock and faced him. She spoke in a calm voice and seemed to have already gathered the facts and formulated a plan. So you came back here to get some cash for the store, and now even the store won't sell. Exactly. Okay, I have another slant on this, and you probably already designed it yourself. Sometimes I think you're right inside my head. I am. She reached out and placed her fingertips on his hands. Alan, continue what you're doing with the store. Make it the place you talked about when we were at the train station. Stock it the way you want. Get on the web. Show people how to get up here on the train. Oh, Suni, that was just the pontificating of a dreamer. Dreamers change the world. Without dreamers, we wouldn't go anywhere. And I don't just say that because you need some financial return. I say it, Alan, because you have a deep feeling for that store, for that summer, for your aunt and uncle. That's the heart of it all. No matter what happens financially, it's your dream, and that's what's important. If you can forget your dreams, you might as well be dead. Alan looked at her in both admiration and astonishment, but what frightened him was the attraction he felt toward her at that moment. They overlapped emotionally and cognitively. He wanted to kiss her. Are you going to send me a bill, doctor? I would, but I don't think I'd receive payment at this time, she said, smiling and raising her brows. Alan leaped from the rock and returned the smile. They started down toward the water. She talked about the kids and how they loved swimming. He had bared most of the truth of his life, yet she hadn't sat in judgment, nor did she panic. They reached the water's edge, and Kenny and his wife stood with the kids at the dock. Thought you were going to catch a uh, boatload of fish. When are we going fishing? called Ben. Hold on, we're going. Alan said Suni, touching his wrist. Remember our discussion about the store. It's starting to look like a plan. Downsized by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 13. Alan brought the little boat along the north side of the island, less than a half a mile from the A-frame. To his own surprise, he and Ben had filled the blue plastic bucket with fish. Charcoal burning on the grill seeped through the woods and he cast out a long, looping nylon line along the lake shore. Hey, Benji, what do you say we go back and cook these things up? Ben, his maroon baseball cap reversed, turned from the edge of the boat. One more, Alan, one more. Okay, but I don't know who's going to eat all this. Ben looked back, still hanging on to the water with his pole. I never thought of that. Maybe we should go back. Can I go back through the woods? Sure, just let me start this thing. Alan pulled the motor cord several times, flooding the sputtering, gas-laden engine. The engine caught, and he maneuvered the boat across the thin channel. He gazed up at another trail leading up through the woods from the sandy shore. The boat slowly slid along the sand. Wait until I tell Mom about this. Ben leaped into the shallow water as the engine idled. Good thing about this island, it's pretty hard to get lost. I'll beat you back. Well, I hope you do. Give me a nudge, will you, Benji? Ben turned in the water and pushed the stern as Alan cranked up the motor. The propeller blades caught in the water and he moved quickly back into the channel. On shore, Ben scrambled into the woods. 
Alan glanced at the bucket of fish, smiled, and followed the channel around the island. Feeling more comfortable piloting the small boat, he veered toward the wooden dock. He slowed, looped the rope around the post, and pulled himself onto the wood planks. Radio music blasted, and the grill smoke drifted through the woods. Alan smiled as he picked up the blue bucket and started up the trail. He had no regrets about telling Suni about his personal life and admired her quality of remaining cool as he related his cataclysmic circumstances. Through the house's open sliders, he saw no one on the deck near the top of the hill as he stepped inside to the cooler air. Hey, are all you people hiding? All right, Suni, I can play games. He poked his head through the far sliders. The hamburgers sizzled on the metal grate and the picnic table was set within paper plates and cups. Hello out there! He heard some commotion in the woods ahead and turned off the radio. Someone screamed and other loud voices couldn't mask someone wailing in pain. Kenny yelled about getting help. Alan leaped down the deck railing and landed in the leaves. Scrambling back to his feet, he sprinted down the opposite shore trail. At the top of the hill, Sunni knelt below Kenny and Jill pushed back the kids. Ben was on the ground holding his leg and screeching loudly. Sunni! Her head snapped. Alan, hurry, hurry. I just called the fire department. Alan hurtled the rocks and bounded down the trail. Ben's pale little leg, clamped within the saw teeth of a rusted animal trap, smeared with deep red blood. Kenny grabbed Alan. Alan, we have to get him back. The fire department is coming, Kenny. Alan slid next to Suni. Ben's head lashed back and forth across the leaves as he gripped the edge of the trap. Alan, help me! Help me! Alan spoke in a slow, soothing voice and held Ben's hands. I'll help you, Ben. I'm going to get you out of this. We'll get you back. Everything will be all right. It hurts so much. We'll do it, he said, looking up at Kenny. Kenny, I want two, maybe three straight sticks, each as long as a yardstick. Kenny nodded and raced into the adjacent woods. The old western Alan had watched years ago floated into his thoughts. He reached down almost instinctively and popped the release pin on the trap. Soon he squinted her moist eyes. Alan quickly removed his white jersey and folded it into a makeshift bandage and compress. Meticulously, he pulled the jaws of the old trap free from the flesh and slid the open trap over Ben's foot. Then he hurled it into the woods and wrapped his shirt around the still oozing blood. Thank God, said Suni, closing her eyes. Suni, back to the house. I need tape. Get any antibiotic cream you might have, some boiled water and a towel. Put the water on the grill if you have to. Tape first. And call the fire department again. With teary eyes, she squeezed Ben's hand. It'll be all right, Ben. How are you doing, Benji? Asked Alan as soon he started back up the trail. Ben nodded, but his eyes crunched into one massive wrinkled mess. Kenny returned with four dried tree branches. How about this, Alan? Perfect. He held Ben's smaller hand again. Benji, I'm going to put these braces under your leg so it won't bend. Help me, please, Alan. That trap's been out here for a long time, said Kenny. It doesn't take long to rust. Alan slid the two sticks under Ben's leg in the makeshift bandage. Suni, clutching a roll of duct tape in her hand, leaped down the trail. Alan lifted the other sticks off the forest floor. Kenny, when she gets the tape here, unroll several two-foot strips. I'll use them to secure the sticks. I gotcha. He gently positioned the two sticks on the upper side of Ben's leg as Suni rushed forward. Kenny reached out and she handed him the tape. 
The water's on the grill, and the fire department are heading down to the docks. Alan nodded and maintained his calm demeanor. Good. Right now, we'll get Ben up to the deck. Sooney, make sure that water is boiling, then we'll dress the wounds. I want Kenny's kids and Jill on the dock right now. Sooney squatted again and held Ben's hand. Ben, a weakened Ben, spoke in a whisper. Alan's my buddy. He'll get me back. I'm getting the water. I'll be right back. I promise, Ben. I promise, said Sooney, tightening her lips. She held his hand and then sprinted back up to the house. Alan lifted the sticks and Kenny handed him the first piece of tape. He secured the ankle area. Then he wrapped the tape around the top and then filled both sides. All right, Kenny, this is what you're going to do. You're going to carry the leg. I'll pick up Ben and be responsible for most of the weight. You'll have those legs. You'll carry the resting sticks on your forearm like you were carrying wood. I understand. Benji, the worst part is over. Stay cool. I'm going to lift you up from under the shoulders while Mr. Baines keeps your legs level. Ben nodded, his eyes still closed. Alan believed as he studied the blood percolated onto the sand that Ben might need a transfusion. He bent his knees behind Ben and watched Kenny place his arms under the stick brace. Okay, Kenny, here we go. Kenny rose as Alan hoisted Ben upward. They began the journey back to the deck a few hundred yards away. Across the woods, more traps were set and a string of empty beer bottles was scattered over the forest floor. Alan shuffled backward as if he were carrying a fragile bomb capable of exploding at any second. Somehow they made it to the deck stairs without disrupting the brace. Soon he was waiting with the towel as they set Ben onto one of the side benches. Alan left the stick braces firmly in place as he gently pulled back his jersey. The jagged wound above the kneecap oozed with a thin blood smear. Soon he had piled gauze bandages on a white towel. Alan washed his hands and then dipped a piece of the gauze into the boiling water. Kenny held Ben's hands as Alan reluctantly wiped away the dirt and rust from the wound's edge. The boy heaved, crying as soon he held his head against her chest. Quickly, Alan dabbed cream along the boundaries of the wound, but was afraid what might be lurking inside. He pressed several fresh gauze squares over the injury and secured the bandage with duct tape. Treating the underside wound was more difficult, and blood occasionally spurted out. Ben was in considerable pain and weakening. With the lower bandage in place, Alan wrapped the entire leg in the white towel. For the first time, he saw Sunni raise her hands over her mouth and cry as Kenny lifted Ben upward. They waddled down the deck stairs and onto the trails. The fire department would be heading toward the lake at any second. They hurried onto the dock, and Alan, arms around Ben's waist, backed into the boat and lowered him onto the blanket spread over the front. Soon he held her son in her arms, and Alan assigned Kenny the responsibility of preventing any leg movement. With a mighty yank, Alan started the engine, checked Ben's position, and gave the thumbs-up sign to Sunni. Her lips moved upward as Alan immediately sped from the dock and swung the boat toward the lake. Like a speedboat in the race, the tiny craft zoomed through the connector channel and traversed the main lake. As Alan stared across the wake slosh, an image of Tug and his buddies in a drunken stupor, leaving traps set around the island, overlapped Ben's beleaguered expression. He wanted to head directly for the auto body and smash his fists into Tug's face. Alan looked back as Kenny called back through the rushing wind. There they are, shouted Kenny, pointing at the fire department boat moving toward the island. Kenny, where's the nearest hospital? Hospital is in Connerville. Time frame. 20 minutes by ambulance. The boat engine buzzed and they skipped across the surface. Infection could set in, and with the wound not bleeding, the infection might spread. 
Soon he nuzzled her son's head in her arms. Melba sat next to Jill, her face wrenching in anger. The frozen faces of all the children, petrified by Ben's injuries and probably wondering if he was going to live, saddened Alan. Amanda moved back, tears covering her cheeks, and she whimpered into his chest. Alan slowed the boat and rendezvoused with the fire department boat halfway to shore. They immediately treated the wound and then lifted Ben into the boat. Alan and Suni followed inside. Alan again thought about Tug. Tug had to account for his negligence. Alan had no doubts about finding Tug, unsure what he might do, but he couldn't forget what Tug's stupidity had done to Ben. Downsized by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 14 Alan slumped in a scooped-out blue vinyl chair in the hospital. He folded his arms and closed his eyes. Drained from the emotion of the afternoon, he tried not to drift out. Soon he paced the tiny waiting room while a team of doctors opened her son's leg and stitched the attaching ligaments. Emergency personnel had pumped blood, antibiotics, and tetanus inoculations into Ben's body. His injuries were not life-threatening, but they worried about the use of the leg. Suni held Alan's hand as her son was wheeled into surgery. With no basis, he reassured her that Ben would play ball and resume normal activities once everything was healed. Now half asleep in the chair, he heard her voice and she nudged him. Alan. He opened his eyes. Suni's blonde hair was matted and her face flat and ashen. He stood quickly. Anything? One of the nurses just told me they were finishing up, Alan. They said it went well and they can't tell about the long-term effect right now. Tears formed in her eyes as she clung on to him and cried into his chest. This should never have happened. You mentioned that Tug used to trap out there. She looked up with red eyes. I know he was trapping over there. Yeah, I saw the beer bottles, said Alan. He left them there. Why would you put a trap near a trail? Damn stupid is what it is. Alan, I don't like to talk about it, but it's been a long haul for me. Tug has made our lives hell. Alan held her as a well-dressed man with a trim brown beard, probably one of the administrators, moved at a brisk pace along the corridor's glossy tiles. Are you Ben Sadler's parents? I'm his mother, said Suni, stepping back and wiping the tears from her eyes. The guy glanced at Alan and then addressed Suni. We think the operation was successful. Your son's signs are stable, slight fever, but that should subside. What about his leg? I don't know. I mean, he will walk. Once the cast is removed, a physical therapist can begin an exercise program. As things progress, we'll understand where he is as far as his range of motion and his leg strength. Can he come home tonight? asked Suni. Yes. We've medicated him to dull the pain and have a prescription to last a few days. And then we'll wean him into an over-the-counter product. You should be able to see him within the hour. Thanks for all your help said Alan, and the doctors. I'm just glad it wasn't worse. He shook their hands and headed back to the corridor. Alan cuddled Sudi into his chest again. He placed his hand over her hair as she locked her arms around the bright green jersey Kenny had given him back in the jeep. His feelings for Suni went beyond Ben's accident. Holding her generated a deep, warm security he hadn't sought, but must have been buried somewhere in his lost thoughts and needs. He sensed a mirror reflection of those same desires as she kept her arms around his chest.
Not surprisingly, Tug's motorcycle was not parked in the driveway. Kenny helped Alan bring Ben asleep on a special stretcher up into his room, but Kenny shook his head all the way downstairs. A lot easier with the cast and the stretcher. Alan nodded and looked at the fresh case of brown beer bottles. Abel Brewing Company, matched to the bottles in the woods. Where is he? Tug? That boy upstairs almost lost his leg, and who knows what else could have happened because of that idiot. I tell you, Kenny, if you're here right now... Kenny pushed his lips together as if he wanted to say more. Listen, Alan, maybe this will be the final thing that gets Tug out of here. I don't think it's been a day at the beach for Sooney, has it? Alan headed for the sink and ran the tap. He cupped his hands and splashed the cool water across his tired face. I feel bad for Melba, too. She looked pretty upset. I've watched Tug slowly wear that lady down. Has anyone called her at Mrs. Hennessy's? Sooney did call her from the hospital. Alan wiped his face with a paper towel as Sooney, now changed to jeans and a sweater, moved down the stairs. How is he, Sooney? He's still asleep. He's okay. He's going to be okay. She looked toward the refrigerator. You guys want something to drink? No, I'm fine, said Kenny. Listen, we'll keep Amanda for the night. Thanks, Kenny, for all your help. Kenny shook his head and brushed the air with his hands. She quickly hugged him. You want to ride back to Nora Pillsbury's? asked Kenny. Well, I'm waiting for that drink, actually, said Alan. Oh, I'm sorry, said Sooney. Well, I need the walk. He shook Kenny's hand. Thanks for responding the way you did. Just followed orders there, Captain. Alan grinned as Sooney handed him a drink. Here's your drink, Captain. Kenny moved toward the kitchen door. I'll talk to you two tomorrow. I'm glad this day is over. Amen to that said Alan. Kenny nodded and pushed the screen door. A few seconds later, the jeep started and back from the driveway. Alan drank the large glass of fruit juice as the sound of Kenny's jeep faded. You were thirsty. Soon he took the glass and quickly refilled it. She handed the glass back to Alan. Thanks. No, Alan. Thank you. Without your leadership out there, I just did what I had to do. Nobody needs accolades for that. Wrong. My boy might not have the use of his leg now if you hadn't acted the way you did. You can get me one of those little plastic trophies, you know, the kind you see in the stores. You can stick some platitude on the base. She moved toward him, but thank you, Alan. Ben will be waking up. I have to get Albert to fill that pain medication. She entered the hall and picked up the phone and was soon talking with Albert. Alan finished the drink and set it in the sink as soon he returned to the kitchen. Albert's going to go down and open the store. Listen, I could go down and fill the thing. I do need to walk. She moved over to the kitchen table and took the prescription in her hand. Albert has all the account numbers. Really, thanks, Alan. You want me to make you something to eat while you're down there? No, no, it's okay. She handed the prescription to him. I'll be back. Promise? Promise. Alan stepped outside the drugstore and stood under the streetlight's warm glow. Albert locked the door. Above and beyond the call of duty, Albert. Oh, no, I just hope Ben's all right. He's a good kid. Well, hopefully we'll get that leg back in shape. My cousin is a physical therapist down in Carnival. Let me talk to her. See what the recovery time might be. Thanks again, Albert. Anytime. Albert bid him good night and trundled to his house behind the movie theater. Alan held the little white paper bag and headed back toward the post office.
The day had worn him down and he longed for sleep as he turned near the post office's empty flagpole. He thought about Sunni's reiterating his own suggestions about Aunt Amanda's store. Stocking the store and advertising it on the web and in magazines was a tempting venture. At the corner of Hillside, he heard a man's voice producing an angry salvo in the night air. He picked up his pace when he saw the Harley-Davidson in Sunni's driveway. Through the side window, Tug waved his hands, but his words weren't clear. Alan sprinted up the drive and ripped open the back door. Tug spun around, pausing in his verbal assault as Sunni passed his hulking form. Alan, she said in a low voice, taking the bag. I should have known. Now it makes perfect sense. That's why you're still in town, Sackett, playing delivery boy to my wife. Shut up. Big man with big words, said Tug in a louder voice. Booze was in the air. I ought to bust your ass right back to L.A. Think you've done enough damage already, Tug. Alan, he's drunk. Don't get him mad. Second, you're an oversized fat boy who can't bend over to tie his own shoes. Alan knew Tug would rush him and be dumb enough to swing with his right hand. At the last moment, as soon he pleaded with him to stop... Alan stepped out of the path of Tug's anticipated right cross, lifted his knee into Tug's bulging stomach, and pushed him back into the kitchen. Alan knew he had the reach on this guy by at least six inches. He had to avoid Tug's powerful tattooed biceps. Tug's eyes flared and he clenched his block fists. He wouldn't make the same mistake this time, but Alan made the first move, faking with a mild left and then stung Tug's bristly jaw with a swift jab. He followed with two additional jabs before Tug could counterpunch and let loose with a left hook, sending Tug against the wall. One of the wall hangings fell to the floor. Alan! shouted Sunni. You left those traps over there, Tug, because you were stone drunk. You left them over there, and one of them sprung on your son, and he might have died. Tug held his jaw, still stunned. Why don't you mind your own business? This is my family. Then why don't you treat them like a family? Alan stepped closer, but he leaped aside when Tug swung wild, almost falling over. We can solve our own problems without you rekindling some childhood romance. We were friends one summer, said Sunni. You keep your mouth shut, Sunni. And you don't talk to her like that. Tug bunched his right fist. I told you, Sackett, this is none of your business. I'm making it my business. Get out of here can't throw me out of my own house. He grabbed a rolling pin from the back of the stove and held it above his shoulder. His eyes glowed like a large cat stalking its prey. Tug, are you crazy? yelled Sunni. She turned toward the stairs as Ben called from the second floor bedroom. Tug, get out. I need to get this medication to Ben. You stay right there, Sunni. I'm going to show you what it's like for this man to be taught a lesson. Alan leaped through the air and swung his fist into Tug's upper arm. The rolling pin flew across the floor and spun in a circle on the speckled linoleum. Alan pummeled Tug's face and finally unloaded a vicious right cross into his cheekbone and eye. Tug buckled at the knees and collapsed. His eyes rolled upward and he fell on his face. Sunni's eyes were stuck open as she stared at him sprawled on the floor. She had the look of a person who had waited years for someone to deck Tug. Her husband immovable on the floor, she picked up the bag and hurried upstairs to Ben. Tug was still out when Alan used the kitchen wall phone to dial the police department. 
The officer on the other end was unconcerned until Alan mentioned Tug's name. A cruiser would arrive shortly. Ten minutes later, Alan gave his statement to Georgie Porgy. The stunned Tug still was groggy on the floor. Soon he returned to the kitchen, having settled Ben with the new pain medication. Georgie Porgy told Alan he needed help lifting the mammoth Tug into the cruiser. Sooney, I'll call you tomorrow. She nodded, her eyes stricken with fatigue. Alan wanted to stay and hold her through the night. The half-conscious Tug was handcuffed and cursed Alan as he was led into one of the town's two jail cells. From the inside cell, he further threatened Alan. Alan chose not to go back to Nora Pillsbury's rooming house that night. Georgie Poggi brought Alan into the cruiser and drove him to the general store. Alan listened all the way to the dirt parking lot to stories of Georgie Porgy's boxing days in the service. When Georgie Porgy finally left him, Alan stood alone in the cool night air. He watched the red cruiser lights move over the railroad tracks and turn onto the highway back into town. The store's deep red hues were barely visible in the gray moonlight. The harvested cornfields stood silent, like fallen soldiers in a battle. Alan put his hands on his hips. He had already made the decision to revitalize the store. It had been a choice probably made before his conversation with Sunni at the railroad terminal. The change had begun with the first brushstroke on the clapboards. He crossed the lot and climbed into the porch shadows. For the longest time, he dozed in and out of sleep, ending up on the wood porch swing under the bright twinkling stars above the valley. Getting capital for this venture meant selling his cars and the boat. It meant further breaking with his life back in Los Angeles and going deeper into debt. He knew the import buyers and the lines of goods he would bring into the store. At 1 a.m., he opened the store and turned on the lights. He visualized antiques and higher-priced furniture for sale along the mezzanine. Old-fashioned wood shells and wire-rimmed barrels would be filled with candy and lined across from gourmet coffee and jelly preserves. Knickknacks and crafty items as well as wall clocks would grace the barnboard walls, and the floor aisles would house an inventory of cheaper imported goods, picture frames, lamps, and household items. He would have a smaller bath shop area and a book section. He climbed the stairs to the mezzanine and peered out over his dream. Shutting off the lights, he retreated down the hall to the small bedroom he had used that summer so long ago. He propped open the rear window and stuck his head into the night. Through the tree branches, he traced the pointer stars of the Big Dipper to the North Star. He thought of Sunni and wondered how he had forgotten about her all these years, how he had relegated this place to an inconsequential corner of his brain and remembered what it was like to be ten years old within a summer of no responsibilities or commitment. Those days were gone, but even with his debts looming back in Los Angeles, he sensed he was on the brink of something new, exciting, and exhilarating. So here's the deal. Alan is falling in love with Sunni and vice versa. But Tug is an ever-present danger, but not as much danger as Roscoe, who has not been paid. I'm Robert P. Fitton, thinking that I haven't been in Idaho in a long, long time. Perhaps it's time to return to the land of tall forests, spreading blue lakes, and peace and quiet. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com 
or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.